Hi guys, here we are today uh, with Caleb Lim, um, Senior Investment Manager at Huobi. Uh, Caleb, great to see you. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks, Lawrence, for having me over this podcast. Well, it's taken a while to get you on. Um, no doubt it'll be worth the wait. So um, yeah, but uh, how's everything going on your end? Uh, I, I, I'm doing good. I think I just came back from a, a 64-day trip in Latin America. Uh, like went to Argentina, Chile, and uh, Uruguay. I think those countries are one of the most beautiful countries that I've been to. Uh, and now I'm back in Singapore and uh, looking for uh, crypto projects and that are that are interesting to look at. Well, look before before we jump into the future of Latin America and everything you've been doing there. Um, just for just for our viewers, for our audience, why don't we just get a bit of a breakdown as to like what you're doing for Huobi what your role is and what it is that you're really focused on right now. Yep. Um, so currently I'm the senior investment manager at Huobi and uh, it's almost been a year right now. I mean, time passed so quickly. And uh, in Huobi Ventures, we invest in projects or companies that are uh, strategic to Huobi Global. I mean, my department focuses on about uh, 70% equity and 30% tokens. And uh, equity could be other exchanges or fintech companies, uh, while tokens could be any Web3 projects. Um, and we have no geographical restrictions when it comes to our investments. Um, just maybe some additional inputs. I think prior to joining Huobi, I was in uh, investment banking um, for quite some time. And while I was there, I was working on M&A, ECM, and uh, loans. And after a few years, uh, Huobi came to me with a hybrid role, a hybrid role that gave me exposure to both M&A and uh, crypto. And, uh, I, 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 and this, this is a very unique role because I've not actually came across something like that. Um, and I guess the transition actually made sense because I were, given that I was in banking and have been in crypto for uh, quite some time. Uh, however, to be very honest with you, Lawrence, uh, at that moment, I didn't know exactly the difference between uh, DeFi, Web3 and Metaverse. I actually thought like DeFi, Web3, and Metaverse were all the same thing. Um, so, but I knew that they, they were some case in shaping our future. So, um, yeah, so, so here I am right now at Hobby. Taylor, I was going to say, let's be honest. I mean, most people didn't know uh, what, what, what the difference was. And actually, to be fair, when I first heard about the Metaverse, when I heard about Web3, again, I'm one of those, I'm naturally skeptical because Jan and I, actually, we discussed this yesterday. We were talking about the metaverse five years ago. We were talking about Web3 five years ago, but we didn't know it was called Web3. We didn't know it was called metaverse, you know? We were just describing what we thought the, the future of the internet would look like. Um, and in terms of, like, decentralization, we felt that it was something whereby, you know, the future of the internet will give a lot more power to the individual. But we didn't really know. We, we didn't have all these. We didn't have the taxonomy around it. So, yeah, um, it, you're definitely not the only one. And I, I think for companies like Huobi, you know, you've, they've kind of like uh, come like storming out of the gates. They're, of course, like one of the market leaders. And again, they're still such a young company. They're still in a real like baby space. I mean, like in terms of Huobi, like who are you guys? And, and what is it the, that Huobi is actually looking to achieve? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. So Hobby is uh, one of the uh, earliest at crypto exchanges and uh, it has been helping 
people to trade securely since uh, 2013. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I actually joined Huopi, uh, given, its, given, its, given its experience. Uh, and since inception, I think one thing you can notice about Huopi uh, compared to all the other exchanges is that we have not experienced a single hacking, uh, I think, single, single hack. And Hobby uh, is actually present in over 170 countries right now uh, with more than 1,000 trading pairs uh, and more than 900 tokens listed. Um, and Hobby has uh, a lot of, I think, a lot of tools that has been given to uh, retail and institu institutional users. It offers spot trading, uh, future trading, OTC trading, Hobby uh, earn, margin trading, crypto loans, and a lot more that, that I probably wouldn't know. Um, so I think that's that's Hobby, and I think Hobby current current goal is definitely to achieve top two or even be the first exchange in the market while still remaining uh, compliant uh, with all the different government globally. And again, you know, we're we're seeing companies like Huobi kind of like bridge the gap between these the fiat currencies and the crypto world. Um, I think that that there was. Um, am I correct in saying that you acquired Bisex recently? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, um, so Hobby, I think uh, this was this yeah this was completed. Uh, if I'm not wrong, in in May or or, or even uh, June. So Hobby actually acquired Bitex, and Bitex is an exchange business, one of the first few exchanges in Latin America. And uh, not only does he have ex exchange business, he has a remittance business as well. So it, that, that makes it set, that sets it apart from all different exchanges that you see in uh, a lot of countries. Um, so in terms of, I guess the follow-up question could be why we actually acquired this company, right? So for, for Hobby itself, it feels like what you, you mentioned just now, a fiat on ramp, right? So uh, it offers a fiat to crypto bridge uh, for Hobby, and uh, also, uh, we, it, uh, through that, we can offer Latin American currencies like Uruguayan currency, Argentinian pesos, uh, Chilean pesos, and so forth and so on, right? And second thing we can look at is in terms of the macro landscape. So I think we do see a lot of rapid crypto adoption in Latin America, and uh, as almost half of the people in the region actually lack a bank account. Um, this, I think, I mean, that explains why despite concerns over uh, crypto volatility, lack of government backing, right? Many people believe that blockchain currencies actually present a, a long-awaited path to finally bring the general public into banking. And the third thing you can look at for uh, Bitex or Remitex, actually it's its licenses. I think what happened is Remitex owns banking or fintech licenses and registrations across Latin America. And through these licenses, it enables Huobi to partner with more regulated banks and fintech companies. Um, I think the next point we can look at is uh, the strong branding. So like what I mentioned just now, Bitex one of the first, I mean, Hobby is one of the first few crypto exchanges. Bitex is one of the first few crypto exchanges as well. This helps to reinforce a credible brand for both Hobby and Bitex after the merger. Yeah, so hopefully that answers your question. And again, you yourself, you've been spending a, a lot of time um, in Latin America. Um, yeah. Sounds like you've had an amazing time there, by the way. Um, what, what do all these investments like? Like, how do all these investments integrate into uh, Latin America? Yeah, so um, I would say that in terms of investments in Latin America, has the, or, or, I mean, like VC or um, maybe financial institutions, financial institutions' uh, appetite for uh, investments in Latin America has decreased uh, significantly. 
I think we can look at macro factors such as interest rates and inflation, right? Um, I mean, when interest rates are higher, there'll be, I mean, that, that, I mean, that what happens is that on this particular investments would be higher as well. Um, so this will actually induce investors to cut back some, in, cut back on risk taking and focus on earning enough to cover this uh, high interest rates. Um, we can also, I think, measure, I think another thing we can look at in terms of uh, risk capital appetite, some evidence of risk capital appetite falling is true. The more investments by VCs, uh, number of IPOs and a bond insurance by uh, uh, bond insurance by these risky companies or startups, right? So you look at funds invested by venture capital. I think um, crypto startup funding has actually fallen to a, a one-year low. Um, and there are many examples of many uh, of these startups that are, fall, are falling to trouble. I think one thing you can look at is um, um, like Celsius, um, Babel Finance, and I mean the I mean the other serious financial troubles, which include coin, the layoffs of layoffs at Coinbase, Gemini, Crypto.com, even Huobi, right? We also have fallen to this as well. So all have contributed to this uncertainty that resulted in the also the funds investor VC decreasing. Next thing we can look at is specs or IPOs, right? So uh, if you look at the past, in, look at the previous years, right? Such as um, in in 2020 or 2021, there has there has been Coinbase, there has been MicroStrategy, Marathon Digital, Digital, uh, Riot Blockchain. All of these have gone through like an an IPO or uh, yeah. And this year, so what I've seen is that only there's only a few companies, right? And that 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 had looking to IPO. And even if they want to. They've actually halted their IPO. Companies include like Rhodium Enterprises, Blockchain.com. They wanted to IPO this year, but they have delayed it. And I think last but not least, you can look at is for bonds, right? In, in, in for bonds in June, I think we don't have like crypto companies issuing bonds, but we can look at uh, just high yield issuers or risky company startups that are issuing bonds. Currently, if you for this year, it's only raised about 50 billion. That's like a 78% drop from uh, last year. Um, also, if you look, if you look at uh, um, that's for US, for Euro Europe and Asia as well, they've declined about also about seventy percent each. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's not coincidental that that this actually all this the funds invested by VC has decreased, the spec IPOs has decreased, bonds insurance by VC company has decreased. It's not a coincidence that actually is similar to what happened during the two thousand dot com bust or two thousand eight market crisis. I mean, the question is, what's going to happen next? Right, we, I mean, we do, so that's, that's my concern. However, I think one good thing among all, I mean, this, despite all these investments in, in risk capital decreasing, I think one good thing that has come out of all of this, I think, like I just read on news, crypto scam revenue has just slipped by about 50 to 60% amid the economic downturn. So I, I think that helps uh, to some extent. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of like what's happening with all these crypto companies, I mean, like really, what, what what do you think um, is the outcome for a lot of them? Yeah, so I, I would say, um, if you, I mean, because I'm in the strategic M and A team, so so maybe what just looking at all of these crypto companies, if you want to analyze as to where they're going through, uh, uh, they're going to become uh, have increase in revenue or they're going through a period of consolidation. I think we first have to look at a corporate life cycle, right? So many of the you can classify. Uh, a corporate, either as a startup, a high growth, a large mature stable, or even a decline of distressed company, right? And most of these crypto startups, to be honest, are startups, right? And high growth, and with very high negative cash burn and a very high need for reinvestment. And so given this negative cash flows, 
I think you have to depend a lot on risk capital for investors. And as mentioned just now, since risk capital or investment in risky companies are lower in this environment, possibly what happened, what happened can happen next in the future is these companies are going to undergo consolidation by yeah. larger mature stable crypto firms, could be like finance, FTX or Hopi. Or worst comes to worst, they become distressed or bankrupt. Um, and also, one, one thing to take note is also firms with high growth. Uh, that I mean, if you look at if you analyze other companies, look at two thousand eight or uh, two thousand. I think a lot of these firms with high growth actually see bigger declines in valuation than firms with uh, low expected growth. So I would say that most of these crypto startups you have probably see a very large decrease in valuation as compared to. Uh, something larger, like if you compare to Facebook or even Google. Yeah. So see, see, one thing, I'd love to get your opinion on this. Companies like Rayon, yep. we have a very, very low capital expenditure. Yep. And again, we've kind of, I've wondered, one of the, the philosophies I've always had is that Rayon needs a recession in order to really, really grow. Because one thing that we, we believe is that a lot of the companies in this sector They've been phenomenal at raising money. That money is not going to be as cheap in the future. And it's not going to be so easy to come by. And like you said, we can see tons of consolidations. Um, but at the same time, for companies that I think have had very, that sorry, have got very low capital expenditure, haven't raised any money. Again, so there's no obligations. Because let's be honest, when you're raising money, it's an obligation. Companies like ourselves that have also worked out how to have a very clear and specific go-to-market strategy have enabled themselves and empowered themselves to just focus on sales and be competitive in a climate where companies are desperate to, to uh, lower their costs, but also increase the quality of the service they're providing. Um, how does that fit in with your philosophy about, you know, all these crypto companies that have raised so much come uh, so much capital and and really back themselves into a corner i would say maybe just just look at rion right so yeah. i mean i would say rion is one of the first few uh, companies that really focus on uh, i think crypto the podcast on crypto and and there's a, this I, I would say uh, it has a very unique business model and also on top of that like what you mentioned uh, you don't have a lot of capex and i can imagine that's going to have the stable cash flows more stable okay. cash flows than than a crypto than a crypto firm that is burning cash um, like every single month so in terms of a recession i would say that possibly is your tightest true and in and also uh, your revenues also uh, i mean given there's a low capex it'll be also be more hopefully more scalable as compared to some of these crypto startups that will undergo consolidation um i, I would say uh, that being said, I would, I would say uh, uh, if, if you just look at other of these crypto crypto companies, like I mentioned just now, if you want to look at um, how, how what's going to happen to them, it's going to, like what I mentioned, it's just going to be a consolidation or it's going to be going through a, a bit of distress. Yeah. And, and in terms of Latin America, like what are some of the trends that we're seeing in terms of valuations there? And are, are there like individual country risks that you're seeing? Yep. So... After being in Latin America for quite some time, um, if you just compare these companies to uh, some of the companies in America or even Singapore, and most of these companies have uh, a low valuation. Um, I would say 
especially right now when right when risk capital should be treated. Um, the equity risk premiums will actually increase with riskier countries, uh, feeling the effect more than safer countries. I think globally, you can also, also in addition, globally, if you see individual countries, I think a lot of these countries are getting into trouble. Countries like, not, I mean, just looking globally, there's like Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Russia, Ukraine, and in, in Latin America specifically, we've got El Salvador, um, and actually this result also in high equity risk premiums, right? Not just um, the, the risk capital retreat, but also individual companies. So if you just want to look at um, some, some drivers to understand like drivers of, of, of country risk, we, we can look at um, a, a few things, right? So um, first thing is political structure. I think if you compare democratic versus authoritarian, uh, there's different country risks involved. There, if you talk about, you can take a look at is corruption. I think corruption presents a hidden tax to, 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 to equity returns. And next thing you can look at is war and violence. And the last but not least, you can look at is countries that respect legal and property rights. So I think these are, effect, these are some factors that many Latin American companies uh, face. And I think if you just want to, to, to do your own valuation, I mean, you don't have the tools, you can actually look, just look at um, uh, PARS group. So PARS group, it, it actually has, actually measures an overall, measure, overall country risk um, and I think if you look at that, you look at the website, you can just see that, for example, Norway, Singapore, and Switzerland are one of the, uh, one, have one of the highest PRS ratings, which results in lower country risk. Whereas company, whereas countries like uh, Lebanon, Syria, Venezuela, are having one of the lowest PRS ratings. Um, besides just uh, looking at this country risk that is presented by PRS group, you can also look at sovereign ratings by other rating agencies, which is which is present in traditional finance you can look at um yeah and and for example in latin america peru we got peru colombia and chile which are investment grade and other countries in latin america like venezuela uh, ecuador and argentina are one of the lowest uh, grades for investments um and next thing you look at for exchanges specifically right um i think in, in latin america it all depends on the cash flows right and and when it comes to valuation, we, we look at some of the common multiples that we look at is uh, valuation of revenue, valuation over monthly active users, valuation over transaction volume. Because with high monthly active users, technically you have more revenue generated, similarly to transaction volume as well. So um, technically, so in, in other words, with low transaction volume or active users, the valuation will fall. Yeah, so um, yep, th th those are some of the main trends that you see in Latin America for valuation. And will these will this fall in valuations? Is this a temporary thing? Yes. Yeah, so, to be very honest, I don't have crystal ball. So, uh, I think valuations will continue to dip even further, and uh, I do see that there'll be extended extended periods of consolidation. Um, I mean, if, I mean, unlike a virus, right, where a vaccine may provide at least some protection for inflation, like what I mentioned just now, right, or, or interest rates, there is no quick fix. So furthermore, just want to add on, I, I believe that um, acquisition and investment strategies that delivered high returns in the past, right? I always say it probably wouldn't work right now in this new environment. I, yeah, I have to say, I, I somewhat agree with you about that. Um, but I mean, you know, we are seeing some like new trends now in investments, uh, specifically within the crypto market. Um, yeah. 
what are some of the trends now that are really standing out in in the crypto space at this time? Yeah, so I would say maybe we can just first look at, I mean, blockchain, right? When you look at blockchain, it's always about on-chain activity. So if you just look at on-chain activity has been suppressed to quite a bit. I mean, uh, I think if you compare it to, to just last month, there has been about 20% or 20% drop for BTC and Ethereum for on-chain volume. And um, next thing we can look at is, is stable coin supply. So stable coin uh, supply has actually contracted slightly to about uh, 4% year to date. And I think this one, you can just, you can look at, you can take, you take into account, like uh, some of the reasons behind this is you can take into account Tornado's cash uh, sanctioning from the US and Circle uh, freezing USDC funds in Tornado cash wallets, right? Due to this, what happens is there has been some discussion regarding uh, MakerDAO make proposing to depack uh, the DAI stablecoin and converting a USDC into Ethereum. I mean, the DAI stablecoin is currently backed by about uh, 31 to 32% by USDC. And if, th if this happened, if this depegging happens, you actually cause DAI to lose its uh, $1 pack due to the disruption of the uh, uh, price stability module. Yep, so um, that's for stablecoin supply. And next thing you can look at in terms of, it's just minus revenue. So minus revenue has just strung quite a bit. Um, I mean, as actually uh, bears from May carried on throughout August, and that led to sinking price of both cryptocurrencies. Um, and for next week, we can look at this like spot volumes um, on exchanges. It's, it has fallen significantly from 2021. Um, however, the on-chain activity, which I mentioned just now, is still much more suppressed compared to the spot volumes in some of these exchanges. Um, yeah, so in addition, I think if you just look at, um, uh, I think just DeFi, DeFi in general, because uh, uh, I, I focus a lot on DeFi, uh, in the past few months. So, I mean, we just, besides Celsius, besides Finblocks, Antica Protocol, Vault, and Hold or Not, I think other smaller DeFi are actually facing uh, massive liquidations of collateral. And these liquidations are actually unannounced. I think some of, I mean, a lot of cases, some of the founders just leave the project. And uh, to be honest, I've been one, I've been a victim for one of these projects. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah, so. You've been part of one of these projects. Yeah, I've been a victim for, for one of these projects that invested. Yeah, that invested yeah, for, for in, uh, in the DeFi space. And uh, also, in, I think or, the last. Sorry? Can, we, can we ask a bit more about what happened with that? Or Yeah, so the founder left the project for, for, this, uh, for this. It's a very small DeFi project. Right. And uh, they just left. Um, and so what happened is, yeah, so thankfully I, I, wasn't, I wasn't able to collect or withdraw uh, my, 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 my investment. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, the, I think the last point we can talk about is um, the Ethereum merger. I think all of us are all anticipating this right now. Um, and I think, I think what you can see is there's a lot of strong futures and core volumes on Ethereum options um, on many of these exchanges, be it Huobi, OKEX, Binance, or the options uh, exchange called Deribit. Yeah. So, for those who are, I mean, like, so. I mean, there are some people that are probably listening into this uh, this podcast that might not be familiar with this merge. I mean, during this merge, actually, the Ethereum network will be transitioning from a proof of work to a proof of stake, right? So, um, yeah. And and when we talk about sorry, when we talk about proof of stake, um, like, what are the benefits there? Um, so I, I think the most I mean the most direct benefits of proof of stake are the uh, reduce hardware requirements for validators and improved uh, energy efficiency. 
I think both of these trades will actually lower the long-term cost for uh, transacting on the Ethereum network. Um, and we, I think we reduce hardware requirements can also lead to more uh, geographically distributed nodes, making a network more decentralized and resilient. Um, and lastly, I think for the proof of stake consensus, it's also more amenable to the incorporation of shard chains, which can expand the horizontal uh, scalability of the network by multiple orders of multitude. Yeah. So, so what, what does that really mean? Is it, is it a form of merge or how, how does that work? So in, in terms of the, in terms of, I just trying to probably in terms of trying to answer, I guess what, what you're trying to understand is what, what's probably going to happen after the merge. Right. So I think immediately after the merge. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Apologies. Yeah. No worries. So um, in, in terms of probably what's going to happen after the merge is uh, there will be likely a series of hard forks, I mean, updates to repay some of this technical debt. I think most notably, uh, some work will need to be done to allow uh, a lot of these proof of stake validators to withdraw Ethereum. Um, yeah, to, to, to withdraw Ethereum. And a mixed uh, major ro roadmap following that is data sharding, right? So, um, which probably will take another one to two years because this is a very new research. And um, also other roadmap, roadmap will also include other scalability and security improvements. Uh, they are primarily undergoing research and development. And I mean, recently, I mean, read about um, a 60% stake of Huobi um, from founder, uh, Leon Lee. Are you able yes. to talk about that at all or? Uh, unfortunately, I won't be the best person uh, to, 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 to share with you about this. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I well, think, what... yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say that obviously, you know, I mean, Huobi is like you know, making huge investments right now. Um, where, where are they really focused in terms of their investments at this stage? Yeah, so, I mean, right now, I would say, actually, coincidentally, Hobby is looking to raise uh, 200 million for our Web3 fund. Right now, so, um, so for, for our fund, we, we focus on, we, we cover angel, C, private rounds for both tokens and equity. And uh, in terms of the Web3 space, we focus on, like, many, many categories, layer ones, metaverse, DeFi infrastructure, cross-chain protocols, uh, I say all of them. And um, yeah, and I think maybe not, besides talking about this fund itself, I think overall, Bobby oh. um, itself, for well, how it looks at investments is that we think we can use this crypto slump to pick up more companies at a bargain, right? However, our investment approach has become actually much more prudent. Uh, than ever. So, I mean, how do you go about sourcing uh, good investments then? Everyone's yeah, so, philosophy, I guess. Yeah, so that's a very good question. So, I mean, like I mentioned just now, I mentioned earlier, right? So, for, I'm currently sitting in the strategic arm of Warby Ventures. And so, what we look at is, um, like, the first thing we look at is synergies, right? So, it may not be applicable for retail uh, consumer, but well, first thing we look at is synergies from a, a corporate corporate development arm. So synergies can include revenue synergies, cost synergies, or tax gains. So some of the things that we look at is through the true revenue synergies could be marketing gains uh, due to more efficient use of promotional campaigns, uh, creating pitch hit by, by a new market through intangible relationships established, geographical expansion, increasing market power, um, some cost synergies that we look at is economies of scale, right? So, or combining complementary resources. 
And for tight skins, we can, uh, there's some, sometimes, in, I mean, in some circumstances, there are some valuable tax loss credits uh, from the accumulated losses from a target company that we acquired. Um, other, 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 poss other, how is it, other factors that we look at are experience management. I think if they have a track record of successful startups, if they have a strong dev team, a strong development team, it also helps a lot. Um, and also look at the credentials um, in terms of academics or the past, uh, in terms of where they were in, in uh, which, what career were they in in the past. And next thing you can look at is strong unit of economics. I think there's something that we focus a lot, uh, which is, um, I mean, and also financial performance and forecast. So we look at growth expectations, margins, uh, free cash flow profile to determine if this would be helpful to, our, uh, to the existing outlook. And I think, I think the last thing we can look at is uh, shareholder ownership. I mean, some, I mean sometimes uh, a simple shareholder ownership would help. Um, I mean, I mean, it, it, having, having a look at the existing shareholder ownership, if they are private, I mean, this company is private, like you can actually check what are the intentions of the shareholders or family in this company and are there any key shareholders that want to influence that decision if there's too many shareholders it makes our investment very complicated as well but and other thing oh sorry i was gonna ask but in in terms of in terms of the too many shareholders but what if it's just the founding team if there's a founding team of like five six shareholders um, no. and there's like one lead shareholder does that cause any problems at all or not really uh i would say it all depends on the in the intentions like what, what do we do? I mean, you could have 16 members and if everyone has different intentions as to how they want to lead the company or how they want to sell their stake, it makes the acquisition or investment very complicated as well. But when you talk, and when you talk about like too many shareholders, I would imagine it's much more complicated if there's multiple institutional investors. Is that the main challenge? Okay. So again, in, in terms of shareholdings, I, I would have actually thought that just having like multiple institutional investors um, definitely is, is the main complication there. But I mean, we're seeing a lot, a lot of um, interesting trends, especially in, in the crypto market right now itself. Um, what are some of those interesting crypto trends that Huobi are looking out for? So uh, I think in, in terms of trends, I think we can look at um, I mean, in terms of, I mean, personally, uh, or maybe a few of my teammates are looking at, at middleware, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of, there's, there's, there's one of the biggest challenges that now uh, DeFi or blockchain companies face is the lack of engineering capacity with the right, with the right range of expertise required to tackle a broad range of projects, right? And I mean, this is, and middleware actually tackles this challenge. So just to give you some uh, perspective, to give you more information about middleware, Middleware is actually a software that provides common services and capabilities to applications outside of what's offered by the operating system. I think data management, application services, messaging, authentication, API management are all commonly handled by middleware. And middleware generally helps, uh, generally helps developers to build applications more efficiently. So, um, if, I mean, give an analogy, the same way you can easily build a website without knowing anything about IP or TCP, right? Blockchain middleware can enable developers to build new decentralized applications without knowing anything about how to create a new blockchain transaction. Um, and being based on a few sources, I mean, block middleware can be classified into upper middleware, lower middleware, and protocol middleware. 
So Apple middleware, what, what it does is it, abstract, it helps to abstract end users and developers from all low levels details of the blockchain. I mean, this comp category comprises of, comprises of smart, smart contract development tools like Truffle or Hardhat, which offer a smoother smart contract development process. So you don't have to worry about manually compiling or deploying smart contracts. Next thing also under this Apple middleware category, we've got interaction APIs that offer easy to use web APIs to deploy ERC-20 tokens or send transactions to the blockchain or interact with smart contracts without having to manually tailor transactions just by interacting with the HTTP uh, API, such as like some examples include like Trust OS. And we also have DeFi wallets, uh, I mean, such as Meta MetaMask. Nick, the next category we can look at is lower middleware. So this entire middleware handles all infrastructure issues. So you don't have to worry about deploying uh, blockchain nodes, keeping, keeping, them, keeping them in sync and enforcing the security. In this category of middleware, we find services like Infura, which deploys a pool of Ethereum uh, nodes and offer a simple web API to interact with, with them. And last but not least is the protocol middleware. I think this is, the, this is my favorite part of, of, I think this middleware categories. So in, this is the level of blockchain. I mean, this is like the next level of blockchain middleware where the, the, this category comprises, uh, comprises different decentralized protocols built on top of layer one and layer two to enhance the core functionalities of the blockchain. And some good examples we have is the graph network. Um, so the graph network is an open, it's quite famous, but it, what happens is it is an open network that continuously index data stored in different uh, decentralized networks uh, like Ethereum and IPFS, IPFS to make it more uh, queryable by external uh, applications. And if, uh, and if uh, for example, if a decentralized application needs to query uh, data on chain, Using the graph means that a development team won't have to worry about building a system to query and index on chain data. So it can, it can this I'll say development team can just instead leverage the graph and then, and then focus on solving core problems instead. So other examples of uh, protocol middleware include uh, the band protocol, uh, Taylor, and Chainlink. Yeah. And I mean, again, we are amidst this crypto winter. Um, from what you're saying, it sounds like there's a lot of positives. What, what, what do you think about Huobi and where, where is Huobi positioned within all of this? Yeah, I would say Huobi is in a very uh, a good and strong position right now. I mean, Huobi Global currently, is, I mean, given that Huobi Global is constantly innovating uh, and expanding its range of trading tools and services to institutional clients and retail users, and even uh, and also uh, developers as well. I would say Hobby is definitely here to stay for the long haul. Well, we're looking forward to uh, watching you along this journey. Um, Kayla Blim, uh, Senior Investment Manager at Hobby. Fantastic to uh, have you with us today. Thank you very much for your time. Likewise, Lawrence. Thank you for inviting me. Happy building. Thank you, you too.